Warning, this podcast episode may contain explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a Shadow and Bone and Grishaverse podcast. If you've been listening, you know that this entire podcast is full of spoilers. (laughs) Nothing is safe. No book, no short story, no television show. Keep listening. You're going to get spoilers. My name is JJ. I'm Kat. And I'm Anjali. And today's topic is whatever we want. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of our miscellaneous topic where we've gotten some emails. We had some things we'd forgotten to talk about in previous episodes. We had a few things that didn't really fit in anywhere. So we wanted to do an episode that we could put all of those into at once. We had planned on doing this episode at the end of last calendar year, and it turns out we had a few things that came up in our lives, but here we are and excited to be back. I'm deep in another fantasy series right now, the Robin Hobbs kind of series. I'm in the third trilogy right now, the Tawny Man trilogy, so I have to you know, make sure I don't accidentally mix this oh, up yeah. with that. Well, we'll keep you honest. Oh, yeah. I I just read uh, book One to Watch, which Anjali, I know you've also read. And Mm -hmm. it has interspersed. There are a lot of different media types. So there are a lot of text message transcripts, a number of Slack transcripts. And there's a podcast transcript interspersed in this book. And the two podcast hosts are Cat with a C and Ruby, which is a very unsubtle, what, what's the word? Not An unsubtle code name for Anjali. And so I definitely <laughs> read that book picturing the two of you having the conversation. I mean, it was a great podcast. You were both great. I appreciate that. Anjali and I were also having several unrecorded podcast episodes talking about the new Wheel of Time show versus the books. So a lot has been happening kind of behind the scenes, still deep in our kind of various worlds of fantasy and fiction. So what is the, what topic should we start with? What is most like burning or top of mind to you two? Let's start with things we forgot. I don't know if we forgot this, but it's just probably worth mentioning again how canonically good looking Zoya is. We did mention it a lot in her episode, <laughs> but kind of on on some reweeds and reskims, it really popped out again at me. So Worth mentioning again, incredibly beautiful, also huge badass, also dragon by the end of the thing. Why do you think Lee Bardugo emphasizes how good looking she is so much? That's a really good question. It feels like it should be for like different reasons in different series, right? When we see Zoya initially in the Shadow and Bone trilogy, it's really Alina noticing how good looking Zoya is all of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mal. And Mal. And Jenya. <laughs> Mal may have and noticed. Yeah. <laughs> Look, everyone's really good looking. Zoya and the Darkling especially. But then that continues through the rest of the series in a way that I don't think we see that continue with Jenya or the Darkling. I mean, the Darkling no. is not himself. Exactly. I mean, and Jenya is yes. supposed to be scarred too, yeah, right? By the end of the first trilogy. But yeah, Zoya is nonstop gorgeous. Every time she enters a scene again for the first time in like five minutes, must reiterate how good looking she is. I mean, I think it relates to stuff that we talked about in the Zoya episode. I think at the beginning, it's very much something that uh, Kat brought up where she has this kind of 
foil to Alina or object of comparison, where Alina is really sickly and pale. So Zoya being incredibly beautiful just serves to highlight and like contrast this ideal that Alina feels like she can't reach. I would say later in the book, I think it's especially in the books that are actually focusing on Zoya, uh, so maybe the last duology. I think it's kind of contrasting, you know, Zoya is very beautiful and, and polished inside, but inside she is kind of a mess in some ways. You know, I think personally she probably feels like her exterior beauty does not match her inner character and worth. Like, I think she doesn't feel worthy of that. And that's kind of an interesting lens to look at it in. And then something that I brought up, right, is that I think her beauty, we've kind of seen it as an advantage for her, but it's really deeply tied to her earliest trauma, which is kind of only being valued for her beauty and, you know, being sold off as a child bride. And it's probably something that she doesn't enjoy or hasn't really enjoyed all her life. I think she's come to use it as a weapon, but it's also a great point of vulnerability for her. Yeah, I think it just always strikes me as weird, especially in the second duology that people comment on it or in their internal monologue comment on it so much, because it makes me wonder, is this, you know, how Lee Bardieu thinks really good looking people just think of themselves (laughs) constantly in their looks? And even for like the people who she already knows, like Nikolai and Nina, and you know all these other people who we kind of get their perspective chapters and they see Zoya I think at some point you see past you know someone you love's looks to an extent where you don't immediately notice it each time they enter I don't know every time I see you Kat I'm just blown away (laughs) I just think really no, strange. I, I, I would get it if it were new people like strangers seeing her for the first time and they're like whoa what the hell who, like who is this gorgeous person who came out of nowhere but for like Nikolai who sees her like 80 percent of his day you know it's weird that he's like but constantly he's also deeply in he is deeply in love even so I think when you're like deeply in love with someone at some point if you see them day after day you're like looking at their expressions their you know mood and like you don't think about their like outer looks unless it's like oh wow you're not looking great today or you know you're looking especially good sure but yeah I think you have a great point I think at some point you stop thinking to yourself how stunning someone is maybe the truth is just Lee Bardugo had a giant crush on Zoya so she couldn't stop talking about how amazing she looked which is fair that's why I was wondering like is it supposed to serve a narrative purpose and I'm curious to both of you because I Anjali has an English major JJ writes quite a bit. Like, is there something I missed as just a regular reader here around why it needed to be reiterated so many times? I, mean, I think as an English major, I would say it's objectively, it's probably... Anjali's like, wow, way to put me on my No, I would say objectively, it's probably a sign of bad writing, <laughs> which I, I don't agree with as a whole. But yes, if it's it does not seem to serve a purpose and therefore the endless repetition. It might be a crutch or generously, it might just be a joke. Uh, it's a joke to describe yeah. Zoya as mm. so stunningly beautiful every time we yeah. meet her it, on the page. Writers have, I don't know, I call them like literary tics. Yeah. It's not something that like bothers me, but it's something that I notice. I notice this in my own writing mm-hmm. too. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of expressions that I have people do that just 
I have everyone do all of the time, which is, you know, I like them, which is why I put them in there. There was one book series I was reading where every time a new book came out, I'm like, oh, I wonder how many pages it will be before someone breathes through their nose. You know, and it was like 17 pages before someone breathed through his nose. I remember reading the Bridgerton series and I was just like do normal people clench their teeth like constantly or oh, like all that. of Julia Quinn's characters are just speaking through like gritted teeth all the time <laughs> it oh, seems th- so that's odd. so as, as a writer when I write I, I do a lot of that too I love it <laughs> I love it in tv shows also. anyway yeah I think you're also right Anjali that the way that her beauty is mentioned is often with some amount mm-hmm. of humor. That's a good point that I do think as a writer, as an author, Lee Bardugo likes to insert a little bit of humor, even in unexpected places. And that's one of the ways that I think she's found a sweet spot to do yeah. so. All right, she's beautiful. While we're on the topic of Zoya, I know at some point I was like insistent that the Darkling sent her away after she had her little tip of the Lena read it through could not find this i feel like i have this false implanted memory of genya telling her so you i mean i think this is one of the things where you read something i wrote and it it implanted this memory (laughs) that it actually happened and i actually think that like enough people think it's likely to have happened that some of the stuff i wrote like skated by on that vague belief that like yeah this seems plausible how do you feel as a writer knowing that your writing has merged with lee bardugo's I love it and then my well my favorite parts of it are when i'm like oh i think you only think that because of something i wrote and you're like no it's definitely <laughs> canon no um, yeah i remember this yeah, this, this is real because i'm also like wait wasn't she sent off after she gets in a fight See? with alina and she I wasn't. still remember the excellent fanfic you wrote, JJ, and I can't believe it's not real <laughs> and part of that universe. Uh, yeah. So she wasn't sent off. Probably should have been. Definitely should have been. Would have been some great banter with her in the Darkling if she had been. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I'm not sure we ever talked about, and I'll go check and see before we, you know, shove 20 minutes of me ranting about this <laughs> into this podcast as well, <laughs> is... How it seems to me that the Darkling and Bagra should have realized, or at least suspected, that there was an amplifier on the skiff with Alina, and that's why she was able to call as much power as she was on the fold. Given that she was not able to do that without Bagra or the Darkling holding onto her at any time after that in the books, including when Bagra was provoking her. But instead... In the books and also in the television show, we don't see them at any point questioning exactly what happened. We don't see them questioning other people about what happened on the fold initially, right? In that kind of in the tent with the Darkling and that first scene where he then amplifies Alina's power. And we don't see them bringing it up in any other circumstance at any point in the series. I'm always playing devil's advocate when JJ and Kat are pointing out potential plot holes. For some reason, I just always want the text to be correct, and I smoothed over the plot hole in my well, mind, I think, so I just I go think with it's that. easier when you don't have the tinfoil around your head to sort of <laughs> see things a little bit more clearly. I mean, yes, I agree with you on face. Knowing what we know, it seems odd that they weren't like, well, why did you display all this power in the fold? And why are we having such a hard time getting it out of you now? Like, this is a real problem. Let's examine the circumstances on the fold and what made you release that power. I think looking at it, I think particularly from the lens of 
Lee Bardigo did not know what Mal was at the time. And you could see that as, oh, this is a plot hole because she adds this detail later. But I kind of see it as the thing that activated Alina's power might have been different. I think we look at it now seeing that, oh, Mal was grabbing her wrist and that's how her powers get you know, amplified. That's how he's acting as the amplifier. And that's what caused Alina to release all this light. I think Lee probably meant it as she was in a life or death situation. And that's why, you know, her block got released. And I think a lot of the things that Bagra does in the hut are like trying to put students with blocks in life or death situations, like hitting them repeatedly, putting them under a lot of stress, releasing a hive of bees on them. So, you know, I sort of wave this away sometimes as saying like, Bagra believed a Volcro was about to eat her. And that's why she released her power. I don't actually have a Volcro, but I'm just going to try to stress her as much as I can. She could have stressed her more than just hitting her with a cane. (laughs) Maybe that was coming. I I mean, I think (laughs) honest, like, if you're trying to put people in mortal danger and you've got a bunch of corporalki around, you can go a lot farther. Like, I'm not Ooh, advocating dark. it. That is certainly not something that I think one should do or that the yeah. book should have done. I think that's very dark. But it does seem like you can really push the envelope there if that's what you're trying to do. I think the other solution is what you actually said, JJ, when we were talking about this the first time, right? The Darkling and the Bagra aren't as smart as they think they are. And so sometimes <laughs> in their arrogance, they overlook things that they really should be noting and acting on. How confident in their Grisha examiner process do you think they really are? <laughs> Probably overconfident, too. <laughs> I hope they have good records. I'd be very curious what those records would end up looking like. One of the things I always think about for the Darkling in terms of like how I characterize him like off off screen from the books. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> You're not off screen in the books. Off page, <laughs> off page. Off page in the books. The way I characterize him is politic, cautious, meticulous. The way I, I think of him is being just so trying to cross the T's and dot the I's. And in my head, this seems like the sort of thing that he would have said, this doesn't quite match up with what I know. I want to figure out what's going on. And I I have that impression in my head, and that's just not necessarily backed up by a number of his actions in the book. I would say similarly, one thing that I don't think is really backed up much by canon, but it's a possibility, is that he and Bagra really know nothing or understand nothing about the Volcra. So... Is there some possibility that they were like, there's some interaction between Grisha and Volcra that we can't understand that caused Alina to access so much power at once? Mm, Like they think it's like a Merzost thing. Maybe. Yeah. And they like really can't know since the Darkling has up until that point stayed as far away as possible from the Volcra. I think also, especially in the TV show and not the books, which I know we don't really talk about, but in the show universe... The Sun Summoner is like a prophesized foretelling Mm -hmm. where someone is supposed to come and save Ravka. And it's kind of got this holy mythology around it, which I honestly would love to know more of. But we we hear bits and pieces of it. And I can see like, yes, this was Ravka's ship and the Sun Summoner just appeared and saved everyone. Right. And so like maybe there's some element of like, okay, well, science, the small science can't totally explain what happened. She was in the right place in the right time in the Mm -hmm. right circumstances. And then you just don't examine it too much. 
Baga and the Darkling are like the least religious people in the whole series. It's true. The Darkling's like, you want to call me the Starless Saint? No problem. I've met the other saints, you want to call them? Actually, that's not true. Bagra becomes very weirdly interested yeah. in religion by the end yeah. of the first trilogy. Is she believing it? I don't know, but she's at least really interested. Although, again, it's not exactly clear which religion it is. She was reading some proverbs or sayings or something. Maybe the same book that the three of us have read as well. I was going to say something that's like very far off the field, but I wondered in the book if there was... Uh, JJ and I are intrigued. No, I, I don't think it's... Far out. Tinfoil. it's a super productive conversation. It's not tinfoil at all, really. You know, I was wondering in the book if there is like a similar holy prophecy or holy origin story for Alina that like maybe only the Darkling knows about. You know, sometimes it strikes me as weird that like all of his plans end up hinging on the appearance of Alina. And I wonder sometimes if he was counting on her to appear to some extent. It makes me wonder how much about Alina's origins, Bagra and the Darkling knew and were counting on. You know, JJ and I dug up this very early interview from Lee Bardugo where she says that she knew exactly like why the Sun Summoner appeared and like who Alina's parents were and like kind of what led up to it, but she didn't put it in the book. And this is something that drives me insane because I desperately want to know that information. And I just think, did the Darkling know that information too? Did he have any hints to it? Was he expecting Alina to show up? I think that's kind of interesting. I think he was expecting her, but the reason why he was expecting her is because I think he looks a lot at the science of things. And if you look at like the making at the heart of the world, if there are shadow summoners, you would expect there to be some sort of balance in the form of like a sun summoner. Yeah, I buy that too. Agreed. I'm glad we threw in the bush all the science of things. <laughs> um, getting all my favorite things in one podcast. Great. So there's one other topic that we haven't really touched on in this podcast, but have talked quite a bit about in our own messenger thread. JJ, <laughs> do you want to kick us off? Okay, so in Siege and Storm, there is a scene where Elena wakes up in her bed and thinks Mal is kissing her. And it turns out it is the darkling through the tether, which she realizes when she looks into Mal's eyes and sees that they are gray. And then the darkling says, I missed you too, Elena. And it's in his own voice. And this scene... I see it getting a lot of discussion on the internet about how gross and horrifying the Darkling is. And of course, the Darkling is gross and horrifying. And this scene <laughs> does not make... I I don't understand what's going on in this scene, and I don't understand why this scene is so isolated. And so, so there are a few things going here. So the scene <laughs> actually starts with the Darkling talking. And apparently that is how Alina wakes up, him saying Alina and him kissing her. And both his voice and the way he kisses her are apparently enough for her to believe that this is Mal. So is he using Mal's voice in the beginning and then uses his own voice later? Is she groggy from sleep and just assumes that everything is Mal? And she just had, just that big had a fight huge with Mal. fight with Mal, right? So no reason right. to believe so. that this is, you know, it's not like she Mal was sleeping in her bed and then when someone's kissing her, she's like, oh, this is obviously Mal. Oh, I I assumed it was more like the you have a big fight and like your partner comes in to like make up and that's why you immediately assume you're like, who else would it be? We 
just had a fight. You're on my mind. And I'm unhappy about how this turned out. Aren't mm-hmm. you? Maybe, yeah. Although I feel like Alina and Mal don't do That's that. That's why I thought she so assumed much. it was Mal. No, they never do that. So (laughs) this is just wishful thinking on her part. But one of the things, speaking of Alina's wishful thinking, is that I was wondering, because we don't really know how the tether works, we know that they appear to each other differently than they look um, in real life at the time, right? They'll appear without scars or, you know, Mm -hmm. Alina will still have brown hair, even when her hair is white in the series. And I was wondering if this kind of grogginess, if Alina wanting it to be Mal, is actually why the Darkling looked like Mal. It wasn't so much the Darkling saying like, hey, I'm going to show up and look like Mal and do this thing. (laughs) But he showed up and just kind of rolled with it like I, I don't exactly know what so I don't know what his plan was I know Anjali you're like he's just trying to throw her off and like yes I I am also on team he's totally just like messing with her most of the series it seems like a little bit of a different way to be messing with her than he does the rest of the time through the tether and it's like different enough that I think it's interesting but I also We don't know why he looks like Mal. We don't know on whose end that is. Elena assumes it's something the Darkling is doing. And when she calls him out on it Mm -hmm. later, he gives one of his non-answers, right? And she's like, is that why you look like Mal? Because you knew I'd turn you away. And he says something like, you know, he was the one you longed for. Is he still? He doesn't say like, (laughs) questions. (laughs) you know, he doesn't say, yes, I did that or no, I didn't. You know, I have this big thing where I think he may have not done a lot of things that he's just happy to take credit for because he's like, oh, yeah, like, sure, blame me for that. And, you know, make me your villain. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The other thing is, if Alina really does think the Darkling showed up looking like Mal, that has a lot of implications for how the tether can be used. And she never, we never see her saying like, oh, I wonder if I could show up looking like some random Grisha and actually get a bunch of information from, you know, the Darkling's plans. We don't really see any experimentation. It never comes up again in either direction. Possibly the Darkling shows up looking like other people at other times that Alina doesn't notice and so we don't hear about. But we definitely don't see Alina trying to use that to her advantage later. And so there have, I just have a lot of open questions after this scene as to, you know, what the Darkling's thought process was, what he actually did, why he did the things he did. And then Alina's reaction, she seems to be not thinking through the implications of what happened. It's almost like she just wanted to forget it happened until she calls him out on it later. I I mean, I think that part isn't as surprising because Elena has a lot of, I think, shame and kind of ingrained beliefs about her womanhood and need to be a pure maiden, if you will. So I'm not too surprised that she might have pushed that to the back of her mind, didn't want to reflect on implications because that would mean she'd have to also unpack what happened. But can I add another question to your list of questions? Why were his eyes still yep. gray? Why couldn't they just be Mal's regular green? Blue. Green Blue. eyes. Brown eyes. Blue. Oops. <laughs> All the colors except the one I said. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, did could he have taken Mal's voice? Did he at the beginning? Because it's interesting. <laughs> at the beginning of that scene... Elena immediately believes it to be Mal based on nothing. There's no indication that was Mal's voice that says that. There's no indication that she opens her eyes before she thinks it's Mal. And so maybe the Darkling is very familiar with how Mal kisses, which 
Yeah, so my reaction to... <laughs> Wait, didn't we want them to kiss someday to know about the amplifier? No, it was Elena and Bob or something. But, okay. My reaction to this theory when JJ put it forth is, one, I've always had a problem with this scene because my number one problem is that how does Alina not realize she's kissing the Darkling instead of Mal? Because they should be very different kissers. She's kissed them both. She knows what it's like to kiss them. And it's maybe a little bit insulting to them both that they're kind of interchangeable to her. I guess uh, she really should have kissed Bagra to see if it runs in the family. Though. Yeah. Ooh. Always bring it back. Um, but to JJ's point about, you know, this, I, I think it's a very interesting theory that the Darkling appeared as himself and Alina is projecting Mal's image onto him because that's what she wants. But I think it doesn't totally hold up to me because I think the Darkling is very vain and he's, his ego is so thin, you know, that if he was just appearing as himself and kissing Alina and she's like, oh, Mal, like, do you see the Darkling smoothly rolling with that? No, he if he would stiffen and he would get upset, I think. His ego would be very bruised and he would let it show in some way, but he almost seems so slick about what happens. I think it's too smooth. I don't believe it. I think that is a great point. And the only explanation I've come up with for that is that he doesn't exactly hear that part correctly. Because <laughs> she only calls him Mal once. And I actually was like rereading it today and wondering how different that scene would have been if she never said Mal. If, if she never said mm. Mal... And because given that she does, we have to kind of pretend that he doesn't hear it uh, to leave it more ambiguous. Because it could have been a very interesting scene where he doesn't even realize that's what he did until she calls him out on it later when he does stiffen. And then he mm -hmm. deliberately relaxes and gives his flippant non-answer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the fact that she says Mal's name in there definitely throws a little bit of a wrench into my did he not even know he was doing it maybe he knew he was doing it no you're right Wait, that's... <laughs> well sorry that's maybe he knew against. she was imposing it on him like he could feel the difference and which is why his eyes came through no but you know maybe <laughs> the eyes thing doesn't make sense to me still like the vocal cord thing i'm like sure i think it wasn't until the second duology that we see any. Well, but remember, he's not really cords, there. Right? There are no vocal cords. Right. So if he's not there, then it really should be whatever she wants to perceive it as if she's the one projecting it. Maybe she's projecting her own conflicted desires onto this. Right? Oh. That's, <laughs> maybe that's, she yeah, summons yeah. <laughs> his presence through the tether because her subconscious is mm -hmm. feeling so... Um, excitable lonely well, yeah. lonely, I mean, lonely excitable well i think she's like she's just been totally rejected by mal again right after yeah. this fight she's clearly I lonely think... and she may have subconsciously tether pulled the darkling to her and then slapped mal's face except his eyes <laughs> i think this is one of the big questions we have about the tether right exactly how it works and how much the darkling actually knows how it works because we know alina doesn't mm -hmm. really know but I'm so curious if the Darkling has a much better perspective, even though he's never potentially had that exact connection before. I mean, I think in part this scene to me was, I wouldn't call it like fan service per se, but it was definitely to continue the tension between the Darkling and Alina. Like you've said before, JJ, there's 
only actually a few scenes where they're together in person. So they need this tether to kind of maintain tension of when is he going to show up? What's going to happen? Oh, they kissed again, you know, like carrying that forward. But other than that, like, what are the things that you think that the scene did for the plot? There's definitely tension. It's another illustration of Alina being conflicted, although like it's another chance for Mm -hmm. her to reject the darkling you know his sexual advances at that point and i wonder if just like having that be so much more clear is both good for her and for the reader well did they also have a scene later or was it before where she shows up he's getting bandaged and they start kissing and he's like, if it's not real, why does it, it matter? Let me. Sorry. Yeah, it, <laughs> Was it that before? the dark quote? I can. But yes, that's in Ruin and Rising. Yeah. So that's oh. one book. Later. Okay. So even though there's tension and we see her rejecting his advances, we still get another scene like that a book later. Yes. But there she's a lot more in control. Yeah. She's also not like half yes. asleep. <laughs> and she went to him deliberately. Should we talk more about the implications of what this, like, tether, if you can appear as someone else or whatever, could have played out as? Like, what could have been interesting to have seen in the books, if either of them figured it out? I think, I mean, I think spying is such the obvious way to use this if you can appear as anyone or anything. And especially because it is, she clearly did not know that the Darkling looking like Mal was not physically there. She wasn't able to Mm -hmm. tell that it was a projection rather than a physical Mm -hmm. person. And so if that holds, spying on each other definitely seems like a big possibility. I think it would have been tough for her to show up because A, the spying, they have to be where the other person is, right? There is some sort of proximity to your tether counterpart. So she would have to show up somewhere the Darkling is. He would probably notice if there's a random stranger in the room that no one else seems to see or interact with. And then secondly, if I continue down our kind of current line of thinking, which is that Alina projected the image onto him, then he would have to do the same for her in order for her right. to spy. So I think it's a question of if Alina really thinks that it was something the Darkling did. And in the book, she does. I would have loved to see her appear as Bagra. <sighs> How would that have worked? I don't know. That ooh, maybe there's a fan fiction there. Oh, there is a fan fiction there. Collab. Yeah, <laughs> we should do a podcast fanfic collaboration about what would have happened there. Okay, Kat and I That's can come up fun. with ideas, and you can write it. <laughs> <laughs> what else might have happened? I'm having trouble remembering, but is it possible the Darkling was spying, and because he does come and attack them? at a very disadvantageous time, right at the end of Siege and Storm. And is it possible that some of that was aided by him using the tether to, or continuing to use the tether to his advantage? Mm. He was definitely lurking mm-hmm. in the war room, right, when they were plotting. Yeah. But would Alina reveal or not stop the conversation if well, she Well, I think Alina pro- perhaps mm-hmm. thinks it's like a figment of her imagination and she's going crazy and she doesn't realize that he's actually That's there uh, stealing information. She mm-hmm. should have stopped it, but she doesn't for whatever reason. Right. So the Darkling's like, I don't even have to look like someone else because you're just revealing it <laughs> when I'm yeah. here. Yeah, let's move into some of the emails. So we've gotten some emails. Thank you to everyone who's emailed. We've been meaning to reply on podcast faster. And, you know, we've gotten some comments as well. So we'll hit a few of those. 
If any of you have other you know, questions or comments or thoughts, uh, feel free to send them in. And when we do our next episode, or maybe we could even do this as part of some episode sometime, we'd love to, we'd love to get to those and share. Okay. So the first, uh, we, first email, we got sort of a hot take from Jeff, who is a co-host of a fellow Grishovers podcast, Into the Fold. And he says, you asked if the death of Matthias was really necessary. As much as I die a little myself every time I reread that part of Crooked Kingdom, I think it was necessary. Alina and Mal have a happily ever after, but in a different kind of way. Kaz and Inej have a sort of open relationship which suits them. Nina and Matthias end up together, but Nina loses him, which gives us at least one character who has to learn to go on after losing her true love. That's the sort of thing I don't think people ever really understand until they have to deal with it themselves. And of all the couples in the Grishaverse, I think that Nina and Matthias are the only ones with the potential to navigate life after one loses the other. No disrespect to Matthias because I love him as a character, but there's so much more ongoing story potential with Nina. And the Fjordans wanted him dead even more than Nina, if you ask me. They hate her for what she is and always was, but to them, choosing to be a disgrace when you don't have to is worse. My immediate thought is that I don't think Matthias actually had that much potential to navigate life if he had been the one who had lost Nina. But then I was thinking, I think that's in large part how the duology wanted to paint him where he was just coming to those crossroads of like you know am i just blindly following nina the way i was following my religion or kind of upbringing before and i think i mentioned this in that episode i really wish we could have seen that play out that seemed like a very interesting avenue for potential conflict and story so kind of too bad yeah i think this is a really great point about the happily ever afters and i was trying this had me trying to picture uh kaz moving on after inej and just like what a disaster (laughs) inej would be so you know i think that's definitely uh not something that we can see there i mean i guess we see it a little bit when he thinks something has happened to her and you know really starts to lose it. I do, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Nina's arc became a really interesting one in the King of Scars duology. And that was a really nice setup for there. I do think it would have been super interesting to see, as you said, Kat, how Matthias would play out there. Yeah, I agree that narratively it was necessary to ruin Nina and Matthias's happy ending, but just my inner heart cries out for Nina because I hate seeing her in pain. (laughs) So actually maybe building off of that, you were mentioning from the comment that Alina and Mel have their own kind of happily ever after as do Kaz and Inej. I think Matthias and Nina would have been the only actual like Mm -hmm. classic happily ever after yeah i think you're very much right alina and mal are happily ever after but alina loses a huge part of herself right and yeah yes yes, i I forgot about that but yes mal also loses his trackerness right which is basically his whole identity and with kaz and inej the (laughs) the tracker and with kaz and inej you know are those two ever going to be really fully whole and content with their lives? No. And so it makes sense. Crooked Kingdom isn't, it's not fully noir, but it is a very dark world. And to have an ending that's ever fully, completely happy without something counterbalancing it doesn't make sense. 
I mean, look at the other couple like that, which was David oh, and Jenya. Another one where, did he have to die? Yes, because they were too happy. Yeah, I'm still not okay about that. Well, maybe <laughs> if in the next series, Jenya gets an arc, we'll, we'll see that play out too. And then we got a comment from Beth Music on Podbean, and she said, There are quite a few nomadic communities, e.g. Kalbaz, Nath in India, that actually resemble the Suli people of the books. There's no such thing as a single Indian culture. It is cultures, cultures, plural. Often when Indians slash South Asians are represented outside of South Asia, only a few mainstream Indian cultures are represented, usually North Indian UC, while marginalized nomadic communities are not. So I think that the Suli characters being cast as people of South Asian descent makes sense. I thought this was a really great comment. I think, and it, it actually taught me a lot. I happen to be of Indian descent, but India is not, as you point out, one culture, and I don't pretend to represent all knowledge of all its facets. And so I actually went and researched the Nath and the Kalbaz cultures, and it is really interesting to me that I didn't even know that India did have these nomadic uh, tribes and entertainers and I think they're only 7% of the population, but still for a country that's over a billion people, that's not insignificant. So that was really interesting. I do think that in the beginning, I'm not quite sure that Lee Bardugo was using them as her inspiration. I do think there are just some descriptive aspects of how she was describing Suli people and specifically some of their styles of entertainment, fortune telling, and clothing that seem to be like really strongly evocative of Romani culture. But I do think in her research, maybe she discovered more cultures and kind of melded a lot of her inspirations into something that wasn't quite as stereotypical as I think a lot of Romani portrayals in books and TV shows unfortunately happen to be. Yeah. Yeah, I love this comment. I think this is honestly one of my favorite parts about being in fandom is just learning from other people who have more context and background on things um, that I hadn't even heard of before. And then lastly, we got a very nice email from Katie who sent us a long list of suggestions that of topics for future podcasts, which I think will surprise the rest of the audience with. I think we're hoping to do some of them. But she left off her email saying, I would love to know more about you guys personally. Where are you from? What do you do for a living? How did you become friends? And how did you get introduced to the Grishaverse? Starting with the easy one. <laughs> yeah. Anjali introduced us to the Grishaverse right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. How did you uh, get introduced, so I happen to know another young, uh, another popular young adult author who got an arc of this book. And so she read it and she recommended it to, to our book club. And we read it and we got hooked. <laughs> um, and I immediately <laughs> tried to uh, foist it off to any of my friends. So that is why JJ and Kat <laughs> eventually uh, read the series. Anjali and I have a funny story of how we met, which is we went to college together. <laughs> we actually didn't know each other in college so much, but when we were looking at the college, deciding whether or not to go there, we were roommates. 
that weekend. And then we reconnected later on more towards the end of our college years. And then I convinced her to come work with me at one point. And that was kind of how (laughs) we how we initially met. And then our relationship kind of developed from there. Yeah, technically, we all went to college together. (laughs) Well, yes, yes. (laughs) Also did not know either of them while there. Yeah, so, and then I sort of followed JJ around from company to company. She was my inspiration as we were navigating our work lives. I actually met Kat at a different company, but then I followed her to another company that she and JJ were working at. (laughs) Yeah, we have all worked together. We also all attended the same college, although we didn't spend much time together during those college years, but professionally and personally have been pretty intertwined since then. So professionally, a lot of the work that I do has been data and related engineering. So sometimes when you'll hear me say, you know, Alina should have kissed Bagra so that we could have had the data on what actually happens with Angela fires, <laughs> or when I'm curious about how many false positives and false negatives the Grisha examiners had. That's my data background coming out there. For me, I've worked for a long time doing kind of various hats, but doing project management. It's not wildly interesting, but I eventually quit my job and actually went to pastry school for a while. So I am a trained pastry chef, I would consider that my current profession. Yeah, so I do want to say that when you hear us talking about waffles and deferring to Anjali, there is a really good reason for us deferring to Anjali about waffles. (laughs) I can also share a personal story, which is we have been trying to make more waffles at home. We are now on our fourth waffle maker because there have been various defects. Literally, our third one did not heat correctly. So we had to get a replacement waffle maker. We thought it was us, and it turns out that it was just the waffle maker was not getting hot (laughs) enough. Uh, But we don't know what we're doing when it comes to waffles. And Anjali has been really graciously walking me through (laughs) the process of waffle making and troubleshooting various waffle makers in addition to vetting different types of waffle makers and explaining that if I'm not looking to make liege waffles, is it pronounced liege waffles? Then certain kinds of waffle makers are more acceptable than others. And that's been invaluable. (laughs) I try to be the Nina of this group if I can, encourage waffles everywhere. I saw (laughs) an ad for waffle print pajamas the other day and almost sent it to you. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to mention, you know, JJ writes excellent fan fiction and sometimes she'll send it to me to vet and my feedback is always pastry related. (laughs) I don't (laughs) think this type of pastry is structurally possible. Please change. (laughs) These are the extents of my notes. That's so important. If if you get the pastries wrong, kind of everything else falls apart. So for me, I also work in these adjacent industries. I met Anjali at my first job out of school and immediately thought she was really cool and wanted to become her friend. So forced myself into her life by convincing her to bake treats for people before she had any interest, I think, in actually. Yeah, maybe you were my catalyst back then. Kat would put these events on my calendar, like, bake pie for pie day and tell me she was going to come over and then did it. And I was like, oh my god, I have to figure out how to bake a pie. (laughs) Bake birthday cupcakes. Oh my god, I have to figure out how to bake cupcakes and decorate them to look like Pokemon characters. So yeah. And they're really good. I have photos of all of these. JJ and I also worked together. I knew she was friends with Anjali, but she also became my SQL mm. mentor 
and taught me so much that I was able to take a future forward with me, including after I left that job, I would ask her questions sometimes. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> well, you know, I actually, when I ran into the person who had given me my first lessons in SQL uh, a few years ago, I told him, you taught me, and then I've taught a bunch of other people, and in fact, some of the people I've taught are now teaching other people, so you're like a like SQL like, grandparent <laughs> or great-grandparent or whatever that is. He seemed to <laughs> true. So. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, yeah. And we also have one podcast listener who is very dedicated and sends us emails or sends me emails after each episode. <laughs> and this is my dad. My dad listens to all of our podcast episodes and writes out his thoughts. How much understanding of the Grishaverse would you say? Yeah, so during? I would say he has not read any of the books or watched the television show. So <laughs> he is doing this purely because I am recording something and he is listening to it because he's my dad, which is incredible. And he's emotionally invested, I think. In yeah, at, at this yeah. point, he's clearly emotionally invested and he has a lot of thoughts about the characters. And his emails are hilarious. <laughs> and what I'll share here is that he ends each email with merchandising ideas. <laughs> Merch! He's like, I can't believe you're not doing merchandise. And so the ideas he's had, some of my favorites are... A brand of waffles, you know, that we could name after Nina's different moods or different flavors for different characters. I actually think this is something Anjali could do. <laughs> he had a Mad Libs using Zoya's verbal cruelties with blanks for super fans to fill in their own Zoya banter. I love a Zoya Mad Libs <laughs> idea. And the, the two that keep coming up often are Knives, which he got the idea for after our Inej episode, <laughs> and potentially a matching game where you match the knife to the saint that it is named after. And then, of course, why aren't we selling tinfoil hats? These are fantastic ideas. He's also suggested manufacturing amplifiers, but I think he's still a little bit vague as to what those actually are and how we might go about manufacturing them. But, you know, I, I definitely think one thing we could do at some point is publish a free tinfoil hat tutorial. I don't know if we want to get into the business mm -hmm. of kind of manufacturing those hats, but definitely. <laughs> I mean, I think you earn your tinfoil hat. <laughs> yeah. If you can't figure out how to make it, you're not, you know, dedicated enough to wear it. <laughs> you're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> Someday. I actually really like the idea of Anjali coming up with an entire, like, Grishaverse based waffle series. <laughs> I This is completely random and off topic, but for The Hunger Games, Anjali and I watched all of the movies together and we would actually do themed parties before each one. And she would make these incredible feasts based on the foods or dishes mentioned throughout the books. So unfortunately, I don't have any like super strong recollection of really good dishes from the Grishaverse, but I would be down to go to this dinner party and please <laughs> yeah, dinner party I, that I'm suddenly hosting. Well, I on, yeah. on these read-throughs, because I often, when I'm waiting for books to come out, when they come out, I'll cook a, a dish 
on a much smaller scale than Anjali. I don't do feasts, but I'll cook a dinner to celebrate the release of a book. And when I tried mm-hmm. to do that for the second book in the King of Scars duology, I was like, what the heck do they even eat? And so on these read-throughs, I've highlighted mm-hmm. every single instance of food. So I have a lot of them. Some of them are things I would not eat, like gelatin molds of deer. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be eating that, but pea soup. Mm. We'll put together a document and then we'll see if we finally get together in a post-COVID world. Oh I will do my best to host a Grishaverse dinner party. Yes. yes. I don't know if you guys remember it, but I celebrated the release of the last book by buying myself an extremely fancy top of the line waffle maker, which I feel like is very appropriate. <laughs> We'll we'll have waffles hot off the press. I can even bring one of my waffles. <laughs> it's working this time. She'll bring all. Oh my gosh! Our, our most recent one does heat well. It like does heat well, but the first thing I did was burn myself on it because oh, I just no. was not thinking of it as hot. And I was like, "Oh, this is dripping off the side. Let me just wipe it off." I was like, "Ow, that really hurt." Anyway, yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us this week. If you guys have any more thoughts, comments, feedback, or ideas for us, feel free to send us an email at crowclubpod at gmail.com. Maybe you'll even get to in a future episode if Angela <laughs> likes your comment. <laughs>